Well, I got you a, I called it a study sheet tonight. I decided we'd be a little more ethical, uh, not call it a cheat sheet. You're not cheating. I'm giving you the notes, but the, the, those go back to last week and this week. And if you'll, uh, you remember, essentially what we're trying to do is take this broad theme we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, this truth that God is in fact sovereign. And the definition I've given you on the top of the page is essentially me trying to just kind of summarize in about two sentences, two, three sentences, uh, what, what we've been seeing and, and how I've tried to phrase it to everyone. When we say God is sovereign, sovereignty primarily refers to the fact that he's in charge. Talks, it refers to who's, who's on the throne, who's in control, who's reigning. And so he alone is in control and rules over creation with complete freedom to act in accordance with himself alone. He's the one in control. He's the one sitting on the throne, and he can do what he wants. But when we say what he wants, we mean God will never act in a way that's outside of who he is, right? You ever, you, we've all probably familiar somebody we know and trust makes a decision, and we just go, that's just a head scratcher. That doesn't fit who we know them to be. That will never be said of God. Every decision he makes is always completely and totally and fully in line with who he says he himself is. He never acts outside of who we know him to be, emphasis being that we know him according to his word. So sovereignty, to be sovereign, demands you possess all knowledge of all things actual and all things possible at one single time, outside of and unbound by time. We historically call this omniscience, all-knowing. means you have to have all power, omnipotence while being all-present, omnipresence, to enforce your own sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, we find that He creates, He sustains, and He governs all creation. He acts to redeem creation according to His plan, and He rules creation outside of time, but He relates to His creation, us being the pinnacle within time. That is really a broad summary of everything we've said about God's sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, He foreknows from all perspect our perspective all things. He knows what decisions could be made. He knows what decisions will be made. We know that when it comes to the will of God, in Scripture, most of God's will is actually tangibly, clearly spelled out in Scripture. This is God's will for your life, church family, that you abstain, that you flee from sexual morality, your sanctification. Pray, uh, uh, um, pray without ceasing, give thanks always, for this is God's will for you. So much of God's will for us is spelled out clearly. We don't have to ask any questions. Now, typically, we get hung up on those questions of, well, what's God's will? Do I take this job? Do I marry this person? Do I date this person? Do I retire this year? Do I retire in five years? Do I... Those kinds of questions. And those are real tangible questions that our God who is sovereign has a real plan and purpose for our lives. He has answers and questions to those, or answers to those questions. And there's a variety of ways He leads us in that in which we have to make decisions. So we said, how do we make decisions in this? How do we walk through this? And so we walked through a couple things last week. We said, one, we've got to do it from a, when you look cover to cover in Scripture, how do people make decisions? How do people respond to a sovereign God? It is always intended to be from a posture of humility. God opposes who? The proud. God exalts who? The humble. So if you want to walk with God, if you want to make decisions that are reflective of His sovereignty, it is always from a posture of humility. A posture of humility means it's, fo it's focused on the glory of God. It repents of any known sin. It surrenders uh, its personal will to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. And a posture of humility recognizes that God alone is the only authority. So let me just go back and preemphasize this. You cannot be in a posture of humility with God if you are not saved. If you are not in Christ, if you are in sin, meaning you're, you're in the same sin nature that you were conceived in, that you came out of your mother's womb into this world in, the sin nature, which according to Ephesians 2, is an active rebellion against God and stands accountable before God for all its sinful actions. If, that's what it means to be outside of Christ, to be a sinner. 
to be in that place is by definition in scripture, pride. It's to be in a proud place. You, as a sinner, believe you are the sovereign of your own life. So you, by definition, as a sinner, as someone not saved, cannot walk in a posture of humility with God. You can't. So when we say that how we make decisions from a posture of humility goes back to what I've said the last several Sundays, it means first and foremost, you actually have to have a true relationship with Jesus Christ, which means you have responded to Jesus Christ at some point in your life, not on the basis of your family heritage and family religion, not on the basis of your works, because no amount of godly works will get you into heaven. Jesus is emphatic about that. He said, there will be people on Judgment Day who say, Jesus, here's the list of everything I've done in your name, and I will look at them and say, depart from me to hell. I do not know you. Works don't bring you to Jesus. Only the grace of God, which you and I don't deserve and cannot earn, which is received through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, will save. For by grace through faith you have been saved, not by works of righteousness, lest any man should boast, but is the free gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We say person and work of Jesus Christ. We mean Jesus Christ, who 2,000 years ago took on full humanity, was born to a virgin there in, in the town of Bethlehem, who spent several years as a, essentially an a exile in Egypt to come back, to grow up in the region of Nazareth outside of Galilee to around the age of 30, step onto the scene and proclaim that he is fully God and fully man. And not only is he fully God, he's not fully God because he was a really good man that God looked down and said, we'll make you the Christ, Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the word according to John 1. And he has always existed. He is always God. He is not a created being. He is not a human like you and me. In the same sense, he has always been God. Which is why it's so significant. His appearance over the river Tigris in Daniel 10 is the same as his appearance in Revelation 1. He's always been God. He is God. And at a specific moment in the fullness of time, he not only continued to be fully God, but he became fully human with the ability to experience life in this world the same way you and I do. He faced temptation, but in every way like you and I, but said no where we fell. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we deserve, and he did not. And in his righteousness, we can be made right with God. So when we say the person and work of Jesus Christ, we mean clearly the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in his holy word, not the person and work of Jesus Christ as as Islam might say, or Jehovah's Witness might say, or Mormonism might say, or Buddhism might say, or progressivism might say, or whatever ism might say, we specifically mean the person and work of Jesus Christ as he reveals himself in his only authoritative word. Now, having said that, and I harp on that, and most of y'all will know why, because I thoroughly believe today there are many people in our churches who don't actually know Jesus Christ. So hear that this be the gospel call. You cannot walk humbly with Jesus Christ if you don't know him, and the only way to know him is by grace through faith in who he is and what he's done. That recognizes who he is as Lord. What he's done is provide a means of salvation, and you need him to save you so that you can know him as Lord, friend, king, and be right related to God. So we walk in a posture of humility. So as Someone who's responded to Christ, what does it mean to be a posture of humility? We focus on the glory. I went through that. Sorry, got caught up. Two, in submission to the Lord. So from a posture of humility, in submission to the Lord at his revealed written word. What the, the word says to do, we do. Not only that, but where we ended last week is what the word says about who God is. We accept so we do what God says do, but it doesn't, it's not just we do what God says do, it's if God says he is this, then he is that. And our job is not to go, well, God, we think you're really actually that. That's great you think God is actually that. He's not. He's this, because he gets to, 
we don't determine what God is like and who He is. And so where we ended last week was talking about practical decisions, recognizing that our feelings, our worries, our fears of what God may or may not be like can keep us from making godly decisions because it puts us in a place of distrust. And you will never make great decisions in light of the sovereignty of God if you're walking in distrust. Faith is the bedrock of our salvation. And once we're saved by grace through faith, do you know how we to continue to walk with God in sanctification? By grace through faith, it doesn't change. So along with this is this, and this is where we'll pick up tonight. We believe God is who He says He is, and we daily respond to who He is and how He acts based on what He says over and against culture's opinions and false prophets who do not get to dictate who God is and how we relate to Him. Uh, listen, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3 here. And by the way, I gave you double spacing between some of these points so you could fill in if you wanted to the Scripture references. That was intentional. Tried to give you some extra space there. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. By the way, are we in the last days? Yes, we don't know if we're in the end days, but we do know from Scripture we're in the last days. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, meaning they can spout off some great opinions about Jesus, but there's no power in their life because they're living like the flesh. Avoid such people as these, for in and then he says, drop down verse ten. Now you, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. It says, indeed, all who desire to live, verse twelve, godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and apostles will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, and he calls him, he calls him to hold fast to the sacred writings which give wisdom to salvation. And he says this, what are those sacred writings? All Scripture. Mentions elsewhere in 2 Timothy that men will accumulate uh, people who will tickle their ears. Listen to what 2 John 2 John verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself that you do not lose heart, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house and do not give them a greeting. For the one who gives a greeting, him a greeting, participates in his evil deeds. And then I, we could read the whole letter of Jude, and here's the point. We live in days and times where there are opinions from a lost world about who Jesus is. And again, it goes back to the isms. I don't care what religion you put up there, what cult you put up there, what, what secular ideology you put up there. None of them get to dictate who Jesus is to us. You don't wrestle with the Jesus of America. You wrestle with the Jesus of reality. You don't wrestle with... Go on. But in addition to this, we recognize that there's not just secular culture. By secular, I mean those which are clearly lost, not in the Word. There's going to be false prophets who know how to take Scripture and utilize it and twist it to all different means. And by the way, this can take a lot of different forms. It can come across like what we'd label today progressive Christianity, which says any sexual expression is okay, even though Scripture's really clear it's not. God's intention for sexuality is a biological male, a biological female created equally in the image of God who expressed their sexuality in light of the way the sex God made them inside the confines and covenant of marriage alone. 
Progressive Christianity, which would take and say, we're going we're gonna to base ethical, ethical truth on things other than man being, mankind being in the image of God. So we're going to base ethical truth on your geopolitical tie. We're going to base ethical truth on your, your religious tie, on your ethnic tie. We, we can come in. There's all sorts of things that, that the danger, the great danger of progressive Christianity is we'll quote Bible verses to try and justify it. And by the way, we'll never forget, you can take any Bible verse to justify any sin. You know who does it? Satan. It's in the Bible. But there's other forms. You can take some of the teaching. It's in vogue now. You can take some of the teaching of uh, prominent people like a Bill Gothard, whose teachings are now being exposed, who, who would have been seen probably in the eyes of the world as a hyper-conservative, but now whose teachings are being exposed and they're rife with untruth. A man who, who claims to be God's divine prophet, and if you disobey his opinion, you're disobeying God. I don't care who tells you that. If I tell you that, run me out of town. So there's dangers here. There's dangers here. Uh, this could be a materialistic and business kind of Christianity that says, Work hard. Scripture says work hard. Scripture says invest your money well. Absolutely. But Scripture wouldn't back up some of the ethical decisions some of the most prominent business tycoons of America made that ran people out of house and home either. This can come in different forms, shapes, and sizes. It's not just false prophets who are seeking to twist and, and go, but let me give you an, an, an even more personal. I've kind of used the narrative of this time in, in my life in the senior year of college. And by the way, just I realize fully, I realize fully most of you in the room, you're going, Wes, we're not, we're not facing the question of who to date and marry. I know that. I'm expecting in your maturity to pull out the principle from the example because the principle applies to any decision. I'm just using a really obvious, easy one where I made a mistake and thought I was doing right. So here's part of the problem in that time of moving forward, thinking I'm supposed to marry this girl who, who by every standard, by every checkbox, looks to be exactly right. God's hand on this. Look at how he's provided. I mean, there's a whole case that could be made if I walked you through the whole story, getting there in the senior year of college. But here's part of the problem is back up, way back when, I got some very, very bad advice about who God is and his guidance for dating from somebody who espoused some principles that if I had known better, and because I was so young as a teenager, if I had compared them to the Word of God, it would have been easy to go, what I mean by this is there was a very prominent book that came out when I was a teenager called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it went through youth groups like crazy. And it was this whole radical, you only date for the purpose of marriage, you don't just date around. That's great, I affirm that. You shouldn't date to just date around. But it went so far beyond that. In fact, one day when my sister was, when I was, I was, think right after college, my mom was reading that book with my sister, and she said, oh my goodness, I owe you an apology. I should never have let you read this at 13. I, know now, I now know why you're so messed up. <laughs> now, here's the irony. The guy who wrote that book that we plunged millions of dollars into and sent all over the place, the guy who wrote that book who was a pastor, has now completely stepped down from being a pastor, has divorced his wife. Not only that, has completely and totally renounced his faith. And some said, well, maybe, no, 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 some progressive Christians kind of stuff, and said, well, maybe you're not really renouncing your faith. You're just, and he said, no, I'm theologically trained. I am renouncing my faith. You're wrong too. There was some very clearly advice in this book that was paraded around everywhere that clearly was not of the Holy Spirit because it's written by a man who may not even be a believer if he persists in his unbelief now. So here's what I mean when I say that when it comes to making decisions, we cannot let culture's opinions or false prophets or the opinions of anybody dictate who God is. Our understanding of who God is, of how he relates to us, has to be completely and totally and thoroughly based on Scripture. 
you should always check me according to Scripture, just like I check anything you bring to me according to Scripture. My job as pastor is never to preach to you my opinions. It's why I preach verse by verse most of the time. Your job is to give you God's Word. My opinions won't give you the perfect impression of God because sometimes I've got bad impressions of God that aren't right. God's Word corrects that. So we've got to make sure that our understanding of God, His will and His ways is thoroughly grounded in Scripture and not just based on people's opinions, our community, bad Christian advice, and lousy pastors, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if we're going to make decisions in the light of God's sovereignty, it has got to be that we submit to what His Word says, which also means we allow His Word to correct us in places we've been off. And so how does that happen? We'll get to that here in a second. That's as we read His Word, meditate on His Word in conjunction with, because it's not just on us, the Holy Spirit of God Himself living inside us who helps us understand the Word and apply it. So we submit to His Word. How do we make decisions? Move to the next one. We thoroughly bathe our lives and decisions in biblically driven prayer, meaning if we, do, if, if we do what God tells us to do and we believe what God tells us to believe, it also means we need to pray how God tells us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, worship, adoration, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, petition for his will, give us this day our daily bread, acknowledging the need for our, 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 our basic needs for his provision, and forgive us our debts as we as for, as have forgiven our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil." Uh, we, we find First Thessalonians chapter 5. We worship Him through prayer of praise and petition. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We want to make decisions in light of His sovereignty. We've got to make sure we are thoroughly bathing our lives in prayer, praying how He taught us to pray. We've seen an example of this, by the way. Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 had a decision to make. Do you continue to pray or do you find a way to excuse your lack of prayer to get by with not being thrown in the lines then according to the decree of Darius? And if you'll remember, when we looked through Daniel 6, there's this interesting statement. It says that when he bowed and prayed... The first thing it says is he spent time thanksgiving to God. And I just remember working through that passage that week in my own study going, so here's a guy who literally is, about to, is going to pray with his window open. He knows he's going to get caught. He knows he's going to the lion's den. And when he bows down in prayer, the first words out of his mouth aren't petition, they're praise. Is that my life? Not only this, be anxious for nothing. And everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding may guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You want to know part of the way that we cure, the part of the, the, the ability to, as we make decisions, not be driven and consumed by worry and control and panic over those decisions? There is a direct correlation to our worry and a lack of thanksgiving of God. It's really hard when you start to really force yourself and drive in to getting before the Lord and really confessing praise and worshiping for who the Word says He is. It's really hard to be in that posture of humility, submitting to the Word, praying as He teaches us to pray. It's really hard to be in worry at that point. And by the way, if I could, if I could go back to, let's go back to the decision of when Wes was about to marry someone that God didn't have for him to marry, behind that truly was ultimately a period of life where I was terrified through my mind about the uncertainty of the future. That's really what was going on backing up a year prior. As I'm someone who, who probably at that point in life especially hadn't acknowledged, I really like the safety of feeling like I have some control and knowing where the car's going. And right now, there's just a giant question mark as what comes after school, and I don't have a clue where the car's going. 
And God, you've got a plan for me and you'll guide me, but I better follow you perfectly or it's gonna all mess up. Now you can already see, I've, I've already started to move away from the, what God teaches me about his grace. I've already started to move away from God, how God shows himself sovereign by intervening in the life of a saint. I've already started to pull away a little bit from scripture in my worry and fear. And oh, what a course correction it would have been if I had just come before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm absolutely terrified about what's coming next year and I have no clue what it is and stuff's coming down to the wire. How am I gonna provide for myself? I don't wanna have to move back home. What's seminary gonna look like? What? Oh, but Lord, even though young men grow tired and weary and may stumble and fall, you do not grow weary. Your ways are unscrutable. Oh, you who's... Un Father, whose understanding is above and beyond all. Oh, oh, you who has written the days that are ordained for me. Oh, you who, who loves me enough, who loves me enough to die for me in the midst of my sin, to call me out in the midst of my rebellion, but somehow as your own child, you're just gonna keep silent. That doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Oh, how there could have been a course correction if in my life I had just spent true time in my daily walk with the Lord, seeking to bow before him and praying as he teaches me to pray, by worshiping him through praise and thanksgiving. We pray and petition for his will to be done. We already saw that in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, here's my require, here's my request. If there's any way this can be accomplished, let the cup pass for me. But if not, not my will, yours be done. Submission to his will. We pray for his will to be done. Not only this, but you say, well, man, okay, well, God, well, I've, got this, I've got this potential job that's coming up. I'm, I'm praying for your will to be done. How do I decide about this job? I really need wisdom. Oh, life circumstances have caused me to realize that I don't have enough wisdom to know what to do. Well, this is wonderful because God says in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him pray for it. And God who delights to give abundantly to all will give him his wisdom let him pray in confidence, in faith, for the one who doubts will be tossed like the sea. Listen to what Paul prays for the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He says, since the day we heard of your faith, you, by the way, Colossians, whom we've never met, Paul's never met them in person. This is not a church he planted. He just heard about him and he wrote him a letter and he said, since we heard about your coming to faith in Christ, we've been praying for you. And this is what we've prayed. We've prayed that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would be filled with knowing what his will is and that you would have the wisdom and understanding of what that looks like played out so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You go, Pastor, I need wisdom. Yes, we all do. God tells us we do. That's part of submitting to his word. I need wisdom to know what to do. Wonderful news is, God teaches us to pray and ask him for wisdom with the expectation that he actually delights to give us wisdom to know what his will is and make the right decision. That's good news. Now, we may have to wait on his timing for some answers, in which case the problem is not his giving of wisdom. The problem is our impatience to want our timeline. And then that takes us back to being humble and going, Lord, oh, wow, I recognize I've got, I've got some expectations here. I've got a timeline for how you're supposed to bring marriage in my life, and this may not be your timeline, and I need to come back over here and lay this down to you. So we pray. We pray for greater depth in knowing and understanding him. If, if, if you've got your Bibles, you can flip back just a couple books to Ephesians. Listen to how Paul uh, speaks about his prayers for the Ephesian church. It says in Ephesians 1.15, Ephesians 1.15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then flip over to Ephesians chapter 3 and listen in verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. These are all different ways of praying. He is praying that the Ephesian church would grow in their depth and understanding and relationship with God. And that in growing in their relationship with God and growing in their understanding of who God really is, that it would lead to a greater fullness of living out the Christian life and walking with God in intimacy of fellowship. We pray for a greater depth in knowing and understanding Him. In all of this, do you, we, we pray and petition and supplicate for each other in accordance with the Word of God. Most of these prayers are all in the context of someone praying for someone else. Man, I would, if you, I don't know what to pray for our church family, would you please just commit to pray every day, Colossians 1, 9 through 11, and those other two passages in Ephesians, if we'd all just pray that, woo. We pray according to the will of God for each other. We pray, and, and let me just back up, we pray for each other. And by the way, I, I, from what I can tell, we, we do a good job of that, church family. May we do an even better job to sustain and support each other in prayer. I'm so grateful for how this church prays. I, I, I'm delighted in how we pray, and I hope that we continue to learn how to pray even greater and better. And church family, as we pray, we pray like it actually matters because it does. Moses got before God and God said, I'm the people of Israel, that's it, their idolatry's too much. I'm gonna bring the hammer down. And Moses got before him and prayed. He interceded on their behalf. He prayed like it mattered and it did because God said, in light of your prayer, in light of your request, I will stay my wrath for this moment. The people of Nineveh prayed in repentance like it mattered and God said, I hear your cries of repentance and I'll spare you. Elijah, according to James, a man just like us, puts his pants on one leg at a time. If they had pants, I'm not really sure, I don't think they had pants, but put his girdle on one lace at a time. Just like we would if we did that. Uh, Elijah prayed what God told him to pray like it mattered and it did. Paul, Paul at the end of Ephesians and the end of Colossians in, in, in similar ways tells the people he's writing to, would you please pray for me that God would open doors for me to share the gospel and that I would have the wisdom, boldness, and courage to say what he wants me to say, how he wants me to say it. Paul didn't ask him to pray because it was just what he's supposed to do. He asked him to pray because somewhere in Paul's understanding, he really felt like if people were praying to the Lord in line with his will for those doors, it mattered. We have got to pray the things Scripture teaches us to pray, not out of a, form, a rote formula that's nothing more than mundane religion in the worldly sense of that word, and we must also resist praying in fear and panic, hoping that God will hear and respond. We got to pray confident of who God is and what he tells us to pray like it matters because it does. And I am firmly convicted one of the reasons we fail in the American church to see God move in some of the ways we see in Scripture is because in truth, American churches, we don't really pray like it matters from a posture of humility, driven in submission to the Word of God, praying how God's Word teaches us to pray. We pray because it's the thing to do. We offer the right formula up, but at the end of the day, God doesn't have to show up today. We've got the most eloquent speaker. We've got the best band. We've got the best lighting. We've got, here's your honored box, God. Please sit here while we perform for you. Now, we would never think that's what we do, but if we look at our actions, that's what we do a lot of the time. It's how we live our personal lives a lot of the time. 
And when you read Scripture, if you want to make decisions in light of God's time, think about, think about Daniel 1 through 6, church family. How many heavy, weighty things faced those young boys in those chapters? And in nearly every place where they had a chance, what did you see them doing? They prayed. They sought the Lord in prayer like it mattered because it does. So we thoroughly bathe our lives and decisions in biblically driven prayer. And by the way, that means some things you're going to get to pray a long time about. Some things you're going to pray for your whole life. And God may bring it about after you die. That's the story of many of the men and women of faith of Hebrews 11. That's the story of even heroes of mine like Jim Elliot who prayed deeply that God would win the Alka Indians to Christ. And it wasn't until after their death and even through their death that God, that those, that those men and women repented and placed their faith in Christ. We've got to pray like it matters because it does. In addition, we've got to trust the Lord by walking in the Spirit. Listen to what Galatians chapter 5 Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. If you're led, verse 18, by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Uh, Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I I warned you. Now, how many of those things can we drift into and out of those things make really dumb decisions? Yet Scripture says that if we will walk by the Spirit, in fact, the, the, the Greek way of phrasing it with a double negative is that not just if we walk by the Spirit, we won't satisfy the desires of the flesh. It's better probably this way. If we walk by the Spirit, in no case ever it is fully impossible for you to satisfy the desires of the flesh. It is as separated as oil and water. They don't mix. If you're walking in the Spirit, you don't satisfy your fleshly desires. And vice versa, if you are satisfying your fleshly desires, it means not that you're not saved, but as a saved person, you're not actually actively walking by and in and with the Holy Spirit. And so, church family, let me phrase it to you this way. If you want to make godly decisions in light of God's sovereignty that are God's will for your life, walk by the Spirit. Because then the decisions we make will be driven by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and they won't be the decisions that gratify the desires of our flesh. As we walk by the Spirit, we respond to the opening and closing of doors. Some decisions we have to make are not as simple as, where do I take the car to the shop? God, this job, what it provides, the situation at work is really tight. I'm praying and asking for you to open something up. There's a couple opportunities to put a resume in. Open doors. And then all of them may close and say, no. we're, we're gonna, there's doors that open, there's doors that close. And what's tough in this is we can't just assume because we're praying about it that any door that opens is the one God wants us to walk through. In fact, we may be praying for God. God may lay something on our heart. We're praying, and a door may open, and God may be the one to shut that door, even though it seemed like it was an answer for, and you go, oh my goodness, pastor, this, listen, do you want to know how to discern where God's will is in the opening and closing of doors? It's by walking in a posture of humility, in submission to the word of God, thoroughly bathing your life in prayer according to the Word as you walk by the Spirit. There are some things I can tell you verbatim. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. I can tell you the answer to your question. There's some things uh, that's gonna, that is between you and the Lord. Let me give you an example. God, um, the last probably two years, year and a half, we were at Central, I could sense in my relationship with the Lord 
that, that the time to begin really praying about when God wanted to move us and, and to pull me out of college ministry and ultimately where I felt like his calling was, was for my life into senior pastoring, that that, that that time I was supposed to really start praying that for that door to open. Did you know that I said no to seven churches before saying yes here? By the way, you were the seventh church I said no to, but that's part of the story. <laughs> Some of those were no's very quick. Some of those were, at least one of those prior to here, was a no with a committee that was ready to take me to the church. There's no textbook. I mean, there is. I've already given you the, the cheat sheet for the textbook, what the Word of God tells us. Walk humbly, submit to the Word, walk by the Spirit, His leadership, His guidance. But, but you and I have to, to learn how to do that. And by the way, walking by the Spirit, just to be clear to all of us, takes time to grow in maturity, to grow in your sensitivity to the Spirit's leadings, to grow in hearing, because sometimes you and I think... We, we think we hear what the Spirit wants us to do. And hindsight down the road with a little bit of growth, we realize, ooh, that wasn't the Lord talking, that was fill in the blank. That's why John tells us, test the spirits. Ooh, that seemed like an open door. That seemed like what it was, but I'm not sure, sure that's what it was. We, we've got to respond. We've got to walk. And by the way, you see this in Scripture, church family. Here's Paul. God, you've told me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Here I am. Here is all of Asia, unexplored, ready to hear the gospel. Open the door, Lord. No, Paul. Open the door, Lord. No, Paul. Open the door, Lord. No, Paul. Ooh, one night, a dream with a man from Macedonia said, come, help us. And Paul changes course. It's Acts 16. We see, we see this interplay of opening and closing doors. There was actually no closed door, from what I can tell, for Paul to go to Asia. The closed door was God said, no, don't go. And realize God said, no, don't go share the gospel over there. Because I want you, my purpose for your life is to take you over here. Part of trusting the Lord and walking by the Spirit is learning how to respond to his opening and closing of doors. Part of how we're going to learn how to respond to his opening and closing of doors is by learning to heed his discipline in our lives. Proverbs 3 says he disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13 really unpack that in our lives. And I'll just remind all of us, when Scripture uses the term discipline, it does not mean only corrective discipline. If you're like me and when you messed up as a little kid, it meant daddy's paddle came out or the belt, depending on where you were and what time it was. When you hear discipline, my mind jumps instantly to correction. I've done something wrong and now I'm getting the correction. That is not the only meaning of the word discipline in Scripture. There's two sides to discipline. One side is corrective. The other side is instructive. Uh, my, my, uh, my high school football days were awesome, but we played what I call Ironman football. We played 11-man football, and eight of us played both ways. My junior year, there were six games I never stepped off the field at varsity football level, not even a play. Now, to do that, because we were a smaller-sized team, what that meant inversely is we ran a lot of sprints in this weather, in full pads. It's miserable, in case you're wondering. It's discipline, but not because we were in trouble, but because our coaches were preparing us for a purpose that you can't be ready for by sitting on your couch in the air conditioning eating ice cream cones. Discipline is both ways. And so God, out of his immense love that he showed for us in putting his son on the cross, intervenes in our lives to correct us when we step awry, the conviction of the Holy Spirit within, and also to instruct us, to train us, to prepare us, to equip us. And I've got news for all of us in this room. Every one of us in this room are a different physical age. And some of us, and, and, and we're also inversely different spiritual ages. 
My 29, uh, yeah, 29th spiritual birthday is coming up in two weeks, August 14th. We're also at different mature levels. And here's the news. I don't care what your age is physically or spiritually, what level of maturity you are with Jesus, if you're this side of heaven, and as best I can tell, all of us are right now, God is going to discipline you. And not one of us is too mature for his instruction. It means there's times we may be following him and feel really sure he's leading us down this path, and then it all falls apart. It may be, well, I can't say that. We're following him. He leads us to this path, and it all falls apart. Well, it's not because we're not following him, but it may be because he's trying to train us and prepare us and equip us. There's some stuff I went through in the last year and a half at Central that was absolute misery. I had to step in and do some things I don't ever want to have to do again. I also firmly believe if that opportunity had not presented itself and I had not followed the Lord into that, I couldn't be ready to come and serve as your pastor. It was instructive. It was discipline. Vice versa. The girl that I thought I'm supposed to marry. I think what happened when I look back as clear as day, I had a choice, date her or not date her. I go back and forth on if I should or shouldn't have. But I had a choice, date her or not date her. The problem was not whether to date her or not date her. If I had not dated her, problem solved, she wasn't who I was going to marry anyways. If I had dated her, the reality was if I had done it in wisdom in humility with the Lord, we would have eventually hit a point where it would have been obvious this is just not what the Lord has for one reason or another. We would have gotten there because the Lord would have led us there. So, you know, why didn't God stop me from dating her? Well, because God gives us the opportunity to make good choices or to make dumb choices and both for the purpose of disciplining us, to instruct us, to and here's how I but but part of what Hebrew says is you'll know you're a child of God if God does discipline you. The presence of his discipline is a sign that we're his child, and not just that, that we're loved. And so when I came to a point in that relationship where I actively believed this is who I'm supposed to marry, and I am now taking tangible steps to make that happen, steps that are going to alter other parts of my life, God pulled the leash. Misery set in my spirit and soul. I could find no peace. Misery that drove me to humble myself before the Lord. God let me go far enough that when he pulled the leash, I would fall on my face in humility before him to actually hear, Wes, what are you doing? I've not led you here. Because our God disciplines. He corrects us. He ch- uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, your means of protection and your means of correction, comfort me. One that you use to fight off things that would attack and kill me, the other that you use to pull me back onto the path when I stray like the dumb sheep I am. Disciplines. Part of what? So, he will humble our pride. He'll allow us to make poor and unwise and wrong decisions because he does test us. And here's the great news, church family. When we realize he's really on his throne, that the God who sits on his throne, from whom no part of our life is hidden, looks on us with eyes of complete and total love for his good, which is our good, who is not waiting on us to invite him to Deal with our life as children of God. Once you came to faith in Christ, you gave up any, any means of inviting God. God, you're God's now. Because he's sovereign, he's free to get up and act and intervene whenever he wants, however he wants, in line with his character. And if we really understand all that, what it drives us to do is take a posture of humility to make sure we really are walking and believing and taking him at his word, to make sure that we are really bathing our life and decisions in prayer, how he teaches us to pray. And in all of this, we're choosing to depend fully on the Holy Spirit 
learning, growing, submitting to his movement, when all of a sudden we do that, it gives us confidence to make decisions because we, so many of our decisions will be spelled out. And the ones that aren't, where we have to truly take a step in faith, we don't do it timidly like Harrison Ford in the last crusade, hoping we don't fall down the ravine. We do it confidently knowing that if it's the wrong step, we have a God who, because He is sovereign, will correct the situation. And my job is just to be humble and submissive in hearing of who He is. And so we make decisions, and this is key, because you and I are going to follow God, we're going to make decisions, we're going to walk down paths, and we are going to face hardship, suffering, and where things fall apart. And if for a second we think that our God is not sovereign, that he does not love us, that he is not big enough to correct and guide us, then when we get to that point, we will crumble. We will crumble because we really won't be sure if we should be there in the first place. Which is why I say, if you get to a point where you go, I think I'm in the wrong, the Spirit's convicting me, great. The great news is, humble yourself, confess to the Lord, and pay attention. And let him pick you up and put you right back where he wants you. But it also means, inversely, if we follow the Lord, and everything falls apart, then we can, like Job, with confidence in the midst of our agony, praise, Lord, you give and Lord, you take away, blessed be your name. The God and rock of my salvation, be exalted forever. So we've hit time. There's more I could say to tie it in a nice little bow, but I told you we'd end on time. So we're end on time. Appreciate your church family. Uh, we will close out Daniel this Sunday as we move into August, awaiting for what summer's really going to feel like since we all know June and July are just a preview. So. Uh, anyways, let me pray and we'll conclude our time. Jesus, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you do give us clear guidance on how to make decisions. Because Lord, at the end of the day, there is no being in all of creation that desires us to make decisions in line with your will more than you. you Lord, to pray your, your will be done, your kingdom come, is, is to pray exactly what is the heartbeat behind you who knows all things and has all power. Lord, you actually can make your will happen. We can't make barely anything happen. So, Father, may we be people here at First Baptist who walk humbly with you. May we be a people who submit to your word over and against our feelings, cultures, opinions, what others may say. May we be a people who pray persistently as you teach us how to pray. May we be a people, Lord, who, um, Holy Spirit, who truly walk with you. A people who, at the end of the day, Lord, are driven to love you with the totality of our being. Because, Father, you have strengthened us in our inner being to know and comprehend all together as the saints what is your height, depth, breadth, and which, what is the love of your love for us in Christ Jesus, so, Lord, that we would live out your fullness. We love you, Lord, because you first have loved us. Oh, Lord, may we, may, Lord, may that just sink home tonight, that you who are sovereign have a disposition toward us of loving kindness, and you delight to save sinners, you delight to reconcile rebels, you delight to sanctify, to lead, to guide, to shepherd your children, all for a glorious end. You're good, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.